This is Crimecast, and I'm Jessica. Welcome, everybody, to the very first episode. In this podcast, I want to talk to you about different crimes, such as serial killers, cults, or even domestic terrorists. I really want to give listeners as in-depth of a look into these people's lives before, during, and after. So we'll first look into the person of topic's childhood, then we'll get into the crime, their capture, and where they are now. Then, at the end of this episode, I'll tell you a bit more about what I want to do with this podcast and where I see it going. So I'm just going to get into the episode now, okay? In 1984, a rash of rapes and murders swept the Hillsborough County area in Florida. The police knew early on that they were looking for a new kind of killer, a serial killer. And with the help of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit and the FBI Crime Lab, they were able to catch him. But not before he killed at least 10 women and raped over 50. One of the tools that the FBI gave a special task force built just to catch this killer was a criminal personality profile. The profile stated that the person they were looking for was going to be a Caucasian male in his mid-twenties with a macho image and assaulted with weaker individuals. He would be a person who would have difficulty holding a job, he was probably divorced, and this killer would drive a flashy car. He would be likely to carry weapons on him and would be inclined to physically taunt and torture the women he victimized. He would then look for victims and randomly select them based on how easy they were to approach and he would stick to a specific geographic area. The profile the FBI gave the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office fit a man named Robert Bobby Joe Long. He would also be known as classified ad rapist. After Robert was arrested, he was 31 years old, on probation for assault, and he was fired from his previous job. He had been divorced for four years, and Robert Long drove a red 76 Dodge Magnum and carried a gun and knife. He would also tie leashes to some of his victims, and he hunted in the Tampa Bay area. Alright, so now I'm just going to get into a timeline of Robert's life before he committed his murders, and then we'll go into the murders and everything like that. So we're going to start on October 14th, 1953, when Robert was born to Luetta and Joe Long in Canova, West Virginia. Robert was also born with a genetic disorder called Klinefelter Syndrome, and this is a syndrome where boys are born with an extra X chromosome and may cause them to have low testosterone, reduced muscle mass, facial and body hair, produce little or no sperm, and can cause boys when they hit puberty to develop breast tissue. And then in 1955, Luetta and Joe divorced, which made Luetta move Robert to Florida. She worked as a waitress there and would leave Robert to be watched by their landlord's family. And then at the age of four, in 1957, Robert almost drowned at the beach when he was pulled under the water by a wave. Later, Robert would blame his mother for this event, claiming she was too busy looking at men instead of watching him. And then we get to 1958, when Robert is five, and Luetta would end up taking him back to West Virginia several times to visit his father, and at this time, Joe and Luetta would start dating again. Also, when he was five, Robert fell from a swing and was knocked unconscious, and his eyelid was skewered by a stick. In 1959, Long began first grade while still living in Miami, Florida with his mother, and this time Long was also injured again when he was thrown from his bike and hit a car. He ended up losing several teeth and had a severe concussion. And then in 1960, Robert failed his first year of first grade and started again 
He started in Miami, but after his parents were married, he would finish school in West Virginia. And then in the spring of 1961, Robert suffered from yet another accident, and this time he got hit by a car. His face bounced from a bumper, and he was rendered unconscious, and he was hospitalized from this accident as a result from the injuries he sustained from hitting this car. And then in the fall of this year, Robert almost died in another accident when he darted in front of a car and got hit. He was left with a deformed jaw and his teeth were injured in the accident. Sometime when he was seven or eight, not quite sure when, he fell from a pony landing on his head and left him dizzy and nauseous for several weeks. And then in 1962, at nine, Robert fell from a fence, which he required stitches in the left side of his head. Now, at ten years old, Robert's parents divorced again and his mother moved him back to Florida. They moved in with several of his aunts and cousins in his household in Florida and the household was so crowded, Robert ended up sharing his bed with his mom, and he also was teased by his classmates because of his deformed jaw and teeth. Robert's mom also began working two jobs, one as a waitress and the other as a bartender, and Long began to feel neglected by his mother and resented the clothing she wore, saying it was too sexy, and this is when he started to become, like, verbally abusive to his mother. And then, at 12 years old, Luetta bought them a house in Florida, and Robert started skipping school, and according to Robert, his mother would bring home different men every night. But later, Luetta would state that this was not true. And then we get to 1966, when Long is 13, he meets a girl, Cynthia, and he would spend a lot of time with her. Long would confide in Cynthia how his mother's clothing embarrassed him, and he was ashamed she would bring home different men every night. And Long and Cynthia became very protective of each other. He also finally got his own bed and would now sleep separately from his mother. And this is the time when that extra X chromosome starts affecting him. He started developing breast tissue because of the defect. And he would soon have surgery to remove that tissue. Also, at this time, Long starts to show some even worse tendencies. He became super jealous of his dog one day because he resented the fact that his mom fed their dog a filet mignon and him a hamburger. And listeners, beware, this is very graphic. He then ended up shooting the dog in her vagina and killed her. And then at 15, Long was accused of stealing cars with a friend, but eventually the charges were dropped. When he is 17 years old, he is arrested for stolen property. He also got a job at Arc Electric as an electrician's assistant. He dropped out of school in the 10th grade twice in 1970 and grew apart from his mother. He also began exhibiting violent tendencies towards her. And then we get to 1971, and Long is 18 years old, and he's accused of raping a girl. But, of course, the police determined that the victim was lying because of lack of evidence. Long also re-enrolled in the 10th grade at this time, but he was eventually expelled. And then at 19, in 1972, Robert enlisted in the Army so he could become an electrician's assistant. He was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base in Homestead, Florida, near Miami. He also earned his GED diploma while in the Army. And then in 1974, 21, Cynthia and Long get married at the chapel on the Air Force Base. Then a month later, Long was in another accident. This time, Long's motorcycle collided with a moving car, leaving him with very serious injuries. He injured his shoulder and had a serious blow to the head and crushed his leg. Doctors considered amputating it, but eventually decided against it. In the hospital, in speculations as a result from his accident, 
Long's sex drive increased dramatically. He would ask for sex from Cynthia every time she visited him, and the hospital nurse stated he would masturbate five to six times a day. And then due to the accident, Wong was discharged from the army in August. And after being discharged, Wong and Cynthia moved off base to a trailer. And then without working, Wong now had a lot of time on his hands. So he came up with a plan to meet women through classified ads in the newspapers to appease his outrageous sexual appetite. This is also the year that Cynthia gave birth to their son and Wong attended Broward Community College. Wong also became verbally and physically abusive to Cynthia, which led to his arrest for battery against women. And then we get to age 22 in 1975, and Cynthia gave birth to their second child, a girl, and moved the family to Fort Lauderdale. Long was unable to find jobs. He even lived in West Virginia where his parents were. And then the Long family would move several times in one year until in 1976, his parents helped him buy a house in Hollywood, Florida. And then in the winter of 1977, at 24, Long became a full electrician. He also got an associate's degree in x-ray technology from Broward Community College. And then at 25 in 1979, on November, Long got a job as an x-ray technician at Parkland Medical Center in northern Miami. And then the next year, in June... Cynthia files a divorce. The relationship became very abusive, and financial concerns strained the relationship. Long briefly moved into an apartment in Fort Lauderdale without Cynthia and kids, and he also lost his x-ray technician job at the Parkway Medical Center. He soon moves in with a friend of his, Susan Ripogli. I'm sorry, I butchered that name, and a friend of hers to help ease rent expenses. And then shortly he moves out of this residence into a place with another friend, Ted Jensel. And Susan quickly followed them after. And then in mid-1981, after Susan moves in with them, she accuses Wong of raping her, but police find the evidence to be insufficient for prosecution. And then two weeks later, Wong and Susan had a physical confrontation, and Susan claimed Wong pushed her and threw her down the stairs. This is also possibly the time Wong began raping prostitutes in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. In October 1981, Susan filed misdemeanor battery charges against Long for throwing her down the stairs. And then in 1982 of November, Long pled no contest for sending obscene material to a 12-year-old girl in Tampa. And then a few months later, in January of 1983, Long moved back in with his parents in Canova, West Virginia. And then between the period of late January to September, Long went to California for commercial driving course, or he moved to Long Beach, California on the 2500 block of Eucalyptus Avenue, where he rented a room from a woman named Kathy. And at this time, he supposedly dated a 17-year-old girl that lived across the street from him. He would also contact women from classified ads, go to their houses, and he would ask to use their bathroom and then use his rape kit to rape and rob the woman. These crimes were never prosecuted by local Californian authorities because the statute of limitation had expired by the time he was caught. And then in September, he returned back to Canova to live with his parents and look for trucking jobs but never found any, and his parents said he seldom went out or spoke to anybody, and Long spent a great deal of time sitting around the house doing nothing. And then, as of February 1983, at 29, Long was hired at Huntington Veterans Administration Hospital as an expert technician. He was described as a polite good worker. He was hired full-time in April, but soon after he was fired for making women patients undress needlessly. And then in late of June, he bought a 
1979 maroon two-door Dodge Magnum in preparation to move back to Florida. The month he moved to Brandon, Florida in the Tampa area, he was hired temporarily at Humana Hospital in Brandon. At a 4th of July party, he met and had sex with a woman, but she would not see him again because she did not like his attitude. And then in August of that year, he met Elise at the hospital where they both worked, and the two began dating. Wong was so pleased about this relationship, he called his parents to tell them all about her. And since Elise was a very religious person, Wong began to attend church with her. And then in September, Wong was found guilty in the battery charges brought up by Susan, and he was sentenced with probation. Wong was furious with the sentencing and wrote numerous letters declaring innocence, and the judge awarded him a new trial. And at 30, in November of 1983, he received a sentence of two days in jail and probation time for sending the photo of an seen letter to the 12-year-old girl from Tampa, Florida. He was acquitted for the assault charges and in the retrial in early 1984. On March 6, 1984, Wong selected a victim from a newspaper ad. His victim lived in Newport Ritchie, Florida, and she, was, and she placed an ad in an attempt to sell her house. While touring the interior of the house, Wong pulled out a gun and forced her to the bedroom. He raped her and stole her jewelry. This is just one of over 50 rapes that they believe he was suspected of committing. Wong would either take the jewelry he stole from the rape victims and pawn them or give them to Elise as, as presents. Surprisingly, she never questioned where he got the money for the jewelry because Wong was in and out of jobs at the time. And then in March, Wong quit his job at the hospital. And then in 1984, Wong abducted Mary Hicks at gunpoint as she drove her Jaguar. And then Hicks escaped by deliberately crashing her car and fleeing. Wong also discovered that Elise was having an affair with another man. At this time, Luetta called Wong to console him over the devastating betrayal, and Wong complained to his mother at the time that there are no good women left in the world. Wong was very depressed with the failed relationship and his failure to find employment. Eventually, though, in May of 1984, he was hired as an electrician for Gulf Bay Electric in Tampa, Florida. On May 23rd, Wong was fired from Gulf Bay Electric because he was rude to girls and watched a lot of porn, and apparently had nude photos in his wallet. And then June 14th, Wong went to an overnight visit to see his two kids who were still living with Cynthia in Hollywood, Florida. And Wong also began working at Tampa General Hospital. Then we get to July 17th, 1984, where Wong was sentenced for the attempted abduction of Mary Hicks. He was only charged $1,500 for the damage of her car and three years probation. Wong moved into a new apartment at this time as well. And then on September 27th, Wong was fired from Tampa General Hospital when he failed to earn an extant x-ray certification. And people at the hospital also said that Wong would talk about sex all the time and didn't react well to his female supervisors. Wong also met a woman named Ruth Allen. They started dating and participating in quote-unquote normal sex. And then October 16th, Wong spent the night with his ex-wife and their kids. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the timeline of the murders and the victims. And we're going to start on May 10th, 1984, when Wong raped and murdered Wen Si Long, also known as Lana. Wen was a 20-year-old young woman who had recently quit her job as an exotic dancer. She was walking home that evening when Long drove up beside her and offered her a ride, which she accepted. Long ended up driving Wen to a wooded area and ordered her to remove her clothes. 
He then tied her hands behind her back and forced her to lie face down on the seat. Wong raped her and then removed her from the car. Once Wen was removed from the car, Wong proceeded to punch her until she stopped struggling, and then he strangled her to death with a rope that he left at the crime scene. He then posed her body with her legs spread very widely. Her body wasn't found until May 13, 1984, and she was found in an isolated area in southern Hillsborough County, Florida. Her cause of death was asphyxiation. Wynne had migrated to California from Laos and followed her boyfriend to, camp to Tampa. She was also enrolled to attend art classes at the University of South Florida. And then May 1984, Michelle Sims was a 22-year-old prostitute who was Long's next victim. Sims fought Long, and he beat her, raped her, strangled, and cut her throat from ear to ear. The medical examiner found three possible causes of death, expitiation, head trauma, and lacerated throat. Any one of these injuries could have been the cause of death. She was found nude and bound with a rope on her neck with a leash-like extension, tied in a hangman-style noose and the knife used on her had a three-inch blade. Her body was found on May 27th and was reported missing on May 25th. She was found in an isolated area in eastern Hillsborough County, Florida. Michelle Denise Sims was, one, was once a beauty contestant in her hometown of Culver, California. June 1984, Elizabeth Loudenbach was Long's third murder victim. When she was found, the pattern was different and was thought not to be linked to the others, but police didn't rule out the possibility. When Elizabeth's body was found, she was fully clothed and there was no ligature. By the time she was discovered, the body had been so badly decomposed that it only weighed 25 pounds, including the clothing, and it took law enforcement a while to identify Elizabeth. When she was identified, her lifestyle didn't fit with the other victims as well. Elizabeth Loudenbach was a 22-year-old assembly line worker who lived with her family. She had no criminal history, nor was she a prostitute, but she did frequent the bars on Tampa's Strip. There was a note in Elizabeth's room that said to find her boyfriend if anything happened to her, which made him the primary person of interest. When he was picked up for questioning, he took a polygraph test, which he failed, and that made him the prime suspect. Then three months later, evidence results came back that actually linked her to Long's earlier victim. Elizabeth Loudenbach was found on July 24, 1984, and she was reported missing on June 8, 1984. She was found in an orange grove in southeast Hillsborough County, and the cause of death was unknown. Elizabeth Loudenbach was said to be a shy girl who worked on a electronics assembly line. Then October 1984, the next woman to fall victim to Long was Chanel Williams. She was found at the K-Bar Ranch. Her bra was found hanging on the entrance gate, and she was nude with her clothing beside her. Originally, Chanel was ruled out as a victim of Long. She was raped and shot, not strangled, and there was no ligatures. The other factor in ruling her out as one of Long's victims was that she was an African-American girl, and typically serial killers don't cross racial boundaries. The police identified Chanel Devon Williams from her fingerprints. She's an 18-year-old prostitute who had just been released from jail on a prostitution arrest. She was last seen working the red light district along Nebraska Avenue with a friend who was another prostitute. She had been dead for six days before she was found. Evidence found at the crime scene and on her body connected her to other victims. With crossing racial boundaries and using a different weapon, Long changed his routine. Shifting patterns is very rare in serial killers and would make him way more difficult to capture. Chanel Williams was found on October 7, 1984 and was 
reported missing on October 1st, 1984. She was found at the Kvar Ranch in an isolated area in North Hillsborough County. She died from a gunshot wound to her head. Chanel Devin Williams had just received her GED. October 1984 as well, Karen Dis friend was found wrapped in a gold blanket tied with blue jogging suit. Her lower legs and ankles were bound in with a common white string, and her hands were tied in front with a red bandana. She had been bound, raped, strangled, hit on the head, and dragged through the dirt. Police identified Karen through her fingerprint. She was 28 years old, and she was a prostitute who was hooked on drugs. She was raised in an affluent suburban household, and Karen was last seen in the early hours on the day she was killed. Karen Beth Disfriend was found on October 14, 1984, and went missing on October 13, 1984. She was found in an isolated area in northeast Hillsborough County in Florida. The cause of death was asphyxiation. Karen Disfriend had a daughter named Alexa. Two weeks later, in October as well, on Halloween, Kimberly Hopps was found. Her remains were mummified and her head was separated by animal activity. There were no ligatures attached and no clothing, but detectives realized that this was the work of the same killer. The medical examiner examined that the, her body had been there for a month. The body was badly decomposed, and FBI forensics had to soften the skin on her hands to get her fingerprints. Long identified her by her street name, Sugar, and police used this information to identify her as Kimberly Kyle Hawk. She was last seen by her boyfriend getting into 1977 or 78 Maroon Chrysler Cordoba. Forensics would eventually find her head hairs in Long's vehicle. Kimberly Beth Hops was found on October 31, 1984 and was reported missing on September 3, 1984. She was found in an isolated area in northern Hillsborough County, Florida, and the cause of death was unknown. She was 22 years old. Kimberly had dreams of moving out west to Texas. And then, in November 1984, Lisa McVeigh left work at a Krispy Kreme donut on her bike around 2.30 a.m. A man snatched her off her bike and threw her into his car and held her at gunpoint. The man reclined her feet so no one could see her and told her to remove all of her clothes and forced her to perform oral sex on him while he drove. He took her to his apartment and she was bound and gagged. Lisa had been sexually abused before and she knew how to read the moods of an abuser. Lisa believed that resistance might cause him to go into a rage, so she quietly did what he wanted. Lisa memorized all she could about her surroundings. First, she would peek out from under her blindfold, and then, eventually, Long uncovered her eyes. Lisa saw everything, including his face. That was when she became certain she would never leave alive. Long took her to his bedroom and continuously raped her for 24 hours. Sometimes he would sleep, but she knew he was armed and that he would kill her if she tried to leave. After a full day of captivity, Lisa was told to take a shower. Long would treat her like a girlfriend at this point, and he would tell her how pretty she was, and when he attempted to sodomize her, he quit because she told him it hurt. Eventually, Long took the bullets out so he wouldn't feel compelled to kill her, and Long exhibited an odd behavior that hadn't been present before. After the shower, he blow-dried her hair and gave her clothes and realized that she must be hungry and made her a ham sandwich. He told her he wished they met under different circumstances and then told her he would drive her home. Around 3 a.m., Long drove towards her neighborhood, and on the way, he stopped at a 24-hour ATM to withdraw money to get gas. Lisa peeked under her blindfold and continued to memorize details. On the dashboard of the vehicle, she saw the word Magnum. When he finally released her home, Lisa's adopted father reported the abduction at 4 a.m. on November 4th. She was interviewed by Tampa police officers, and they were amazed by her almost total recall. 
and her fierce resolve to catch a rapist. Although not killed, there are many similarities to the Hillsborough cases. Tampa police sent her sweater to the FBI crime lab for forensic comparison. Lisa McVeigh was returned home on November 4, 1984 and was abducted on November 3rd of 1984. Also in November, a week after Kimberly Hopps was found, another body was found. She was found on the same road as Chanel Williams and was only a little farther north in Pasco County, Florida, near a mobile home park. Even though she was found in a different county, police noticed the ligatures and other forensic evidence that connected her to Long. The victim was Virginia Johnson. Her body was decomposed mostly to bone, but the telltale leash was still attached around her neck, and there was another ligature on her arm bone. Near her body was a woman's shirt, panties, and jewelry. The bones were scattered over almost an acre. When pieced together, they seemed to belong to a young white female. Virginia Johnson split her time between Connecticut and Florida. She disappeared on her way to buy cigarettes about three weeks earlier, and possibly the FBI crime lab still found forensic evidence in her hair. Virginia Johnson was 18 years old, and she was found on November 6, 1984. She disappeared on October 15. She was found in Pasco County near the county border, and the cause of death was strangulation. She was a waitress and a prostitute. Virginia Johnson had lost a sister in a car accident a year prior to her murder. Also in 1984, another victim was found. The victim was Kim Swan. She was found nude except for knee-high stockings, and her body was face down. But when police turned her body over, they could tell she had been badly beaten and she had struggled. They found ligature marks on the front of her neck, both arms, and wrists, but no rope was found. Her wadded-up jeans and flower top were near her body. Kim's driver's license was in the pocket of her jeans. She was last seen leaving a convenience store near her parents' home the previous afternoon. It seemed as if Long had just pulled off the road and thrown her out of the car. 21-year-old Kim Marie Swan was found on November 12th of 1984 and she went missing on November 9th. She was found in Tampa near Route 60 and the cause of death was strangulation. Kim was a student and a part-time exotic dancer. She also had a son named Robbie. Still in November 1984, when interrogated, Long confessed to another victim that had been yet to be found. The victim was Vicki Elliott. Vicki was 21 years old and found on November 16, 1984 and was reported missing on September 7, 1984. Vicki was reported missing by her employer when she failed to report to her job at a coffee shop. When police searched her apartment, they discovered an airline ticket for an upcoming trip to visit her parents in Muscogon, Michigan. Vicki Elliott was found in an isolated area in northern Hillsborough County, Florida. The cause of death was strangulation. Vicki had dreams of becoming a paramedic. And then, again in November, the last victim was found, was actually possibly Long's first murder. Looking for a way to fulfill his sexual needs, Long picked up Artis Ann Wick. Not much is known about Artis due to how long it took to find her, but Artis had hitchhiked from Gas City, Indiana to Tampa, Florida, and then Long proceeded to assault and rape Artis when he picked her up. He was still unfulfilled with his revolting assault, which caused him to strangle and kill her. Artis Wick was found on November 22nd, 1984, and March 28th is estimated date of her murder. She was found in an isolated area of southern Hillsborough County, and the cause of death is unknown. Artis was 18 years old and engaged to be married. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the evidence that was found at each of the crime scenes, and that linked Robert to all of the murder victims and Lisa McVeigh. <laughs> During the time that Wong was committing his crimes, the Hillsborough County averaged about 30 to 35 homicides per year, and while some of those murder victims had been found bound, 
None had been found bound in the manner that Long had unto his victim, and before the first victim, when Thee was found, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office had just finished a difficult homicide case where they used the help of the forensic FBI lab, and the cooperation between the two departments resulted in the successful conclusion and conviction of the person who committed the murder. And that decision to fly the evidence in this case to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C., was a result of that previous success. So with the first victim, the detectives found hairs that were examined and found to be the victim's hair or unsuitable for comparison. They also ran a serology examination that were that were also negative due to the decomp of the body. And serology is the study of blood, semen, saliva, and other body fluids to legal matters, generally comprised of the detection of enzymes and antigens, as in the identification of seminal stains or blood typing and DNA typing. They also studied the knots in the ropes and identified that the knots were extremely common and not unique to any particular profession or occupation. They also found tire tread marks in the ground and they made casts of that which were examined and photographed and the impressions were kept for future references. Fibers they removed from the items in this case were also examined and this evidence would provide the first important lead in the case and soon it would become one of the most critical evidence of the entire case. The FBI crime lab found a single lustrous red trilobal nylon fiber on a piece of fabric found near Winthy's body and because of the size, type, and cross-sectional shape of this fiber, it was probably carpet. Because of how exposed the body was to the elements for a substantial period of time, it was impressive that fibers had been found transferred to her body, and it was assumed that most of the carpet fibers that originally had been transferred to the body had been lost. Since when Thee was found in a remote area, she was probably transported in a vehicle, and the carpeting was probably the last item she had been in contact with. So because of the red fiber that was found, it was figured that the killer was driving a vehicle with red carpet. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office was advised by the FBI crime lab to keep the fiber information confidential so that the killer wouldn't change its pattern and start disposing the bodies in such a way that the fiber evidence is either lost or destroyed. And then May 27th, Michelle Sims' body, her body had been at the scene for roughly 8 to 10 hours and her hands were bound to the side with clothesline type rope. And like I said earlier, the ligature around her neck was made of the same type of rope and it was tied in a hangman's noose. But there was a three to four foot length of rope extending from the noose. The victim also had what appeared to be a green man's t-shirt binding her upper arms. Hair and fiber evidence was collected from the victim's body. And there was also several tread, tire tread impressions located in the dirt roadway that passed about eight feet from her body. It seems that the impressions were caused by a vehicle turning around in the area to, next to the victim's body. The evidence from where Sims was found was immediately flown to the FBI lab in D.C., and because this was a fresh site, the chances of them recovering significant evidence would be greatly improved. The tire casts were examined, and one of the impressions from the right rear tire was ID'd as being from a Goodyear Viva tire, with the white wall facing inward. Tire impressions from the left rear could not be immediately ID'd because it wasn't in the FBI reference lab. The FBI ended up providing the Hillsborough Sheriff's Office with the name of an individual in Akron, Ohio, who was a tire expert. And the tire casts were flown to Akron, where the cast was ID'd as being made by Vogue Tire. This tire was, was a specialty tire that came only that comes only on Cadillacs. The fiber removed from the evidence revealed red lustrous trilobal nylon fibers 
that matched the ones found on Wen Thi, and a second type of fiber that was found as well, a red trilobal delustered fiber. Lustrous trilobal fibers are shiny and three-sided, while trilobal delustered fibers are three-sided fibers where the shine is subdued, usually from a chalk, and it's on synthetic fibers. And this indicated that the killer was driving a vehicle containing two different types of carpet fibers. There was also semen stains found on the clothing of Sims, and group testing conducted on the semen stains showed a presence of B and H blood group substances. Hairs removed from the body and clothing and examined by the lab, they found brown, medium-length Caucasian head hairs that could have come from the killer. Human hair can provide information on race, body area, artificial treatment, or other unusual characteristics. Hair can be strongly associated with a specific individual when matched with a known hair sample from the individual. With this info, the sheriff's office was able to build a physical evidence profile of the killer, which was distributed to other law enforcement agencies, but the carpet fibers and cordage was still kept confidential. When Elizabeth Loudenbach's body was found on June 24th, and she was found in the Orange Grove in the southeast Hillsborough County, and she was the one that was in advanced stage of decomp, weighing about 25 pounds. They found no ligatures with her, and she was not found near an interstate like the first two had been, but evidence from the case was sent to the FBI lab, but <clears throat> they made no requests to have her compared to the evidence from the other homicides because it was assumed that this victim was not connected to the other two. Eventually, the hairs from this case were examined with negative results, and serology examinations were also negative due to the considerable amount of decomp of the body. Later, the fibers were examined, and there were two types of red fibers, the same as the other two cases. When Chanel Williams was found, the head area was in an advanced stage of decomp, way more than the rest of her body, and the autopsy revealed a puncture wound to the back of her neck. But they found also a gunshot wound, which would be the actual cause of death. The homicide detectives who responded to the place where Chanel was found began to look for similarities to the previous homicide. Besides the fact that the victim was found nude in a rural area and that she was a prostitute, there were no other similarities apparent. The evidence from this case was sent to the FBI crime lab, just like all the others, and they found both types of red nylon fibers on various articles of William's clothing. A brown Caucasian pubic hair was also found on the victim's sweater. This was eventually matched to Robert Long. Group testing conducted on semen stains ID'd on the victim's clothing revealed a presence of A and H blood group. This was inconsistent with earlier finds, but this could also have been because of her work as a prostitute. When the body of Karen Disfriends was found nude from the waist down and was wrapped in a gold-colored bedspread that was tied by a blue jogging suit on the outside, bedspread had also been tied at both ends with common white string. This friend's hands were bound in front with a red and white handkerchief and her right wrist and leg were bound with another white string. Her feet were bound with drawstring and there were ligature marks on her throat. She had been struck on the forehead and strangled. Detectives firmly suspected that when they arrived at the scene that this was related to previous homicides. The ligatures were almost the signature of the killer. Red fibers were found when the medical examined the body. The evidence from this case was also sent to the FBI lab. It provided valuable evidence. The knots on the ligatures were similar to the knots from the other cases. A brown Caucasian pubic hair was found on the bedspread, and semen was found on the bedspread and sweatshirt as well. The tests also disclosed the A and H blood group substance. The bedspread was tested, 
and found to be made of gold three-lustered acrylic fibers which would link back to long vehicle. Both type of red nylon fibers were found again on most of the items and were compared to the other carpet fibers. On October 35th, when they found Kimberly Hopps' body, she was nude and mummified, and because of the amount of time the body was exposed to the elements and because the victim was nude, no foreign hairs, fibers, semen, or any other type of evidence was discovered, but she would be linked to Long's vehicle through a comparison of her head hairs with the hairs found in the vehicle. And then on November 6th with Virginia Johnson, her bones were scattered about the large area, but they still ended up finding a ligature, and another ligature was found on an arm bone. A shirt, a pair of panties, and some jewelry was also found. They found human hairs considered to be from the victim. The detectives from the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office learning of the discovery of the body met with the Pasco County detectives and because of the ligatures believed that this was related to their other homicide, which brought the two agencies together to work the case. The evidence from this site sent to the FBI lab and due to the extensive decomp, the body gave very little physical evidence. But in the victim's hair from the crime scene, they found a single red lustrous carpet fiber and linked the case to the others. Eventually, her head hair would be found in his vehicle. When they found Kim Swan's body on November 24th, she was found on an incline off North Orient Road in the city of Tampa. The body was face down with the head at the lower portion of the incline, and this would now bring in a third jurisdiction to the case. The victim had been at the scene for less than 24 hours, and they found a wadded pair of blue jeans and blue flowered shirt near the body of the victim. And she was wearing knee-high nylon stockings. They found faint tire impressions in the grass next to the roadway and a piece of wood with a possible tire impression. And it seemed that the killer had pulled off the road just to throw her over the edge of the incline. When they examined the body, it was revealed that fecal matter was on the inside of the victim's leg and on the outside of her clothing. The victim had noticeable ligature marks on the front of her neck. They also found ligature marks on both wrist and arm, but they found no ligatures. When the Tampa Police Department responded to the crime scene and saw the ligature marks, they called Hillsborough County Sheriffs and asked that they also respond to the crime scene. The homicide was believed to be related to other homicides. The evidence from the scene was sent to the FBI crime lab. The tire tread on the wooden board had this limited design similar to the tire impressions from two of the other homicides. Also, red nylon fibers were found on the clothing of the victim. They examined the head hair from the victim, and it would later be linked to the suspect's vehicle. Even though there are now three different departments working on the case, each department still worked on their own cases, but they all continued to exchange information between each other. This exchange led to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office to learn of a 17-year-old white female's rape case the Tampa Police Department sex crime detectives were working on. This was the Lisa McVeigh case, and this case would lead to the biggest break the detectives needed to stop the serial killer. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office urged the sex crime detectives to send the rape evidence to the FBI lab. On November 13th, the FBI lab called with the results from the evidence collected. They have found the same red fibers on McVeigh's clothes that had been found on the homicide victims. Alright guys, now we're up to the capturing of Robert Long. The police formed a task force on November 14th, the day after the evidence linked the rape case of Lisa McVeigh to the murders. The task force consisted of Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, the Tampa Police Department, 
the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Pasco County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI. There were about 30 officers assigned to the task force, and these officers immediately flooded the North Tampa area searching for the vehicle that was identified because of McVeigh's testimony as a 1978 Dodge Magnum and the apartment. One task force member flew to the state capitol and returned with a list of every Dodge Magnum registered in Hillsborough County. This list revealed Robert Joe Long as an owner of a Dodge Magnum. The task force was also obtaining a subpoena for bank records for all the ATMs in North Tampa. While that was happening, a team out patrolling down Nebraska Avenue in North Tampa noticed a red Dodge Magnum. They stopped the vehicle and told the driver that they were looking for a robbery suspect. The team members ID'd the driver as Robert Long, who was photographed and field interrogated. The ATM records revealed that Robert Long had used a machine around 3 a.m., on the morning McVeigh was released. McVeigh then identified Long from a photo selection as the assailant. An arrest warrant and search warrant was written up and approved by a circuit judge. The task force began a 24-hour surveillance of Long two hours after being stopped earlier. They found him at his apartment. To minimize the chance of being spotted, they also used aircrafts to help keep surveillance. The task force formed separate teams within itself. They had an arrest team, it was selected to physically arrest Long, and two officers from this team was selected to interview him after the arrest. Then they had two teams for search and seizure, one for the car and the other for the apartment. Then the last team was a neighborhood survey team to interview Long's neighbors in his apartment complex after the arrest and before information was released to the media. Long was arrested at a movie theater 36 hours after the task force was formed. The arresting officers returned Long to his apartment to serve him the warrant to search his apartment. Long was too embarrassed to leave the police car and witness the search. They then took Long to the police station to be interviewed. The interviewing officers got pointers on how to conduct the interview from the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI Academy. The agents advised for the officers to display their authority and thorough knowledge of the case to get Long to cooperate. The officers first started talking about the McVeigh case until he soon confessed. Then, the officers began going into the homicide cases. Long originally denied any involvement in the murders. While he was being interviewed, Long's vehicle was being searched. They found the specialty tire and Goodyear Viva tire with the white walls facing in. A sample of carpet was cut from the car to be examined and was confirmed to be a match. The interviewing officers told Long about the matching carpet fibers and its significance. They also explained to him that they would be taking hair and blood samples. Long ended up confessing at that time. Alright, so now we're at the trial of Robert. On April 22, 1985, Robert Long was on trial for the murder of Virginia Johnson in the Pasco County area. The trial lasted a week. Long was eventually found guilty for the murder and was sentenced to death by electric tear. Then, in Hillsborough, County Long pled guilty for the other homicides on September 24, 1985. He received 26 life sentences, 24 of them concurrent and two to run consecutively to the first 24 years, and seven life sentences with no parole for 25 years. In addition, the state kept the option to seek the death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims. The trial for Sims' murder was held in Tampa in July 1986 and it lasted one week. Long was found guilty and was sentenced to die by the electric chair.
On May 23, 2019, 34 years later, Robert Bobby Joe Long, a.k.a. the classified ad rapist, was executed by lethal injection at 6.55 p.m. at Florida State Prison. In the front row of his execution sat Lisa McVeigh Nolan, now a Hillsborough County Sheriff's deputy, along with more than two dozen others, all who were victims of Long, the surviving family of the killed women who had to spend the rest of their lives without their loved ones that were taken away from them by a selfish person who could not control his sexual urges. Well, guys, that is the end of Robert Joe Long and the end of the very first episode of Crime Cat. You know, I found it crazy how many accidents that he had in his younger years. It makes me wonder if any of those accidents caused him to become a murderer. I mean, it seemed to me that after his motorcycle accident, his personality definitely changed. I mean, come on. Who has the energy to masturbate five to six times a day? especially in the hospital with doctors and nurses coming into your room every few minutes. When I read that, it just blew my mind. There are also studies that show that if you sustain trauma to the frontal system, it can lead to increased risk of impulsive aggression, poor decision-making, and a lack of control of social behavior. I mean, not that it gives anyone any right to take someone's life, but it makes me wonder if there's some way that there could be some kind of treatment for people who, after having severe head trauma, and start to display weird, out-of-the-norm behavior. So, email me what you so email me what you guys think about any of this my email address is crimecastjessica at gmail.com also you can find this podcast on facebook under crimecast and instagram at crime.cast i will also post pictures that are related to the episodes on both media sites as well all right so now i want to talk to you about where i want to see this heading this was something i've been thinking about for a while now and i want to make this become successful and do more with this than just me reading about crazy crime eventually i would like to have episodes where i can have interviews with detectives fbi agents or even people who are involved in some of the crime i also would like to try and do a co-hosting episode every once in a while with other podcasters who are interested in true crime stories stories and i'm really excited to see where this goes and i can't go very far without you all who are listening so i want to thank you for tuning in and ask you to subscribe to this podcast and review it now on our next episode we will be talking about the freeway killer William George Bonin. Bonin killed at least 21 teenage boys between the age of 12 to 21. He would pick up young males who were hitchhiking, sexually assault, and murder them, then dispose of their bodies along the freeways in LA and Orange County, California. Bonin also had multiple accomplices during his murders. So join us next week to hear more about this manipulative sick serial killer. And thanks again for listening.